Broadway Bullet, Volume 815, Gone But Not Forgotten, for April 4th, 2018. Don't miss a single episode of Broadway Bullet. Subscribe for free through iTunes or at broadwaybullet.com. In this episode, we have two shows that have passed, but we expect to hear more from their creators soon. Immersive theater has exploded, and we talked with creators of Curiosities, Anthony Logan Cole and Brian Knowlton. Both are veterans in the new trend of all things immersive. They discussed not only what they needed to keep in mind creating their piece, but perhaps what you should keep in mind in creating yours. Next up, Earlier in the season, we talked to composer of Whiskey Pants, Christian DeGray, who, since I posted the interview, has gone on to be director for Opera America. In this episode, we talked to book writer Serana Gay and lyricist Joseph Reese, both of whom I certainly expect to hear from more. Finally, I talked to an old friend, Brett Twomey, who has been making his living for several years, both on the road, touring with Rock of Ages, a show he made his Broadway debut with, and also treading the boards on many legitimate stages in Chicago. He talks about life as an actor on the road and in the Windy City. All of this, coming up. thanks to our location sponsor. Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatist Guild Foundation is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, and offering a free rehearsal space where I've recorded this episode. For any questions about how DGF might be able to help you, please visit dgf.org. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. I'd like to thank uh, my school, the University of Providence. They are our travel sponsor. They pay for me to get there as well as a student to come help out and meet all these people and stay there. And this is all because it relates to the program that I created. It's the School of Theater and Business Arts. You learn the art of being an artist and the business of being an artist, because it is important. If you hear anything in this show, it's that these artists have to treat themselves as an entrepreneurial business. And you learn how to do that as well as your art at the University of Providence. Check us out. There's a link at broadwaybullet.com. And uh, if you are a senior or junior, come on out and visit us. We'd love to see you. Breaking the business. Curiosities. 
is a new immersive theater. No, 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 don't, no, don't turn that off. I know immersive theater is hot, but, <laughs> but there is a new one, and it's worth checking out in Brooklyn. Brooklyn, yes. Uh, Curiosities, and we've got two creators, and one of who is also a performer in Curiosities, Anthony Logan Cole and Brian Knowlton. Hello. Uh, also Hello. How are you guys doing? Good, good. good. Yeah. So getting immersive theater off the ground in New York City where real estate is king. <laughs> How? <laughs> well, first of all, tell us about Curiosities and, and, you, and I guess a little bit what you do. I understand that you guys have uh, are quite experienced in this new world of immersive theater, which I actually have to say, your show is my first experience in Immersive theater. Cool. Oh, so. That's a good thing. Well, That's I'm a good honored. Thing. Thank you, Cherry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and 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 that and in our show, it, we do. That's great. Um, so yeah, immersive theater. I've always been fascinated. I come from a traditional musical theater background. Um, a lot of shows like Les Mis and Jekyll and Hyde and big storytelling epic shows. But the thing that I love the most is the idea of literally sitting down with a person and telling a story like we used to over a campfire and kind of distilling the art of acting and storytelling mm-hmm. down to its its purest, most intimate, most human form. And uh, that's why I think people also are crazy about it right now. There's mm-hmm. such a, a craze for it because... The, in, the intimacy is what's getting people going nuts about it. You know, you're forced, we've talked about this so many <laughs> times, but and we repeat ourselves, but you're forced to put down your phone <laughs> for an hour and a half and actually look at somebody in the eyes and listen to what they have to say and you are touched and you are immersed in somebody else's life. You know, you're, it's almost like you're a voyeur watching somebody else's perspective, you know? And that's why people are so... Um, crazed about it, I think, you know. Well, I did. I mean, like I said, well, I haven't seen a show yet. I've heard people talk about mm-hmm. it. So I knew enough to go, oh, I get to go up and this little fight that's happening over there, I can, like, go walk right over there and yeah, like, get oh, in yeah. your face and see what's going on with... Yeah. <laughs> and you can open a drawer and touch the props. And, oh, I didn't even I mean? think of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the best part. There are all kinds of secrets. Um, I mean, we created a show where we take... Up to 50 audience members, we wanted to cap it at that because we wanted each audience member to have a unique experience. And depending on who they followed, who they interacted with, what experiences they had, when everyone's reunited again for the finale, everyone has a different perspective on each of the characters. Uh, The character I I play is called The Professor. Mm -hmm. There are people who come to the finale who believe that he is an angel. (laughs) There are people who come to the finale who believe that he is the devil incarnate. (laughs) Um, And neither of them are wrong. It's just about perspective Mm -hmm. and about the things that they've seen and heard and experienced. So when we reunite everybody for the finale, everybody comes at it from a very different Mm -hmm. place. Um, my best friend growing up is a video game designer, and he he calls this replayability. You can come back to the show over and over and over again and never see the and same thing. have a things. totally different experience. Totally you know? different experience, yeah. um, which is really a fun thing about immersive theater. And also, too, kind of, you know, it's like, you know, sitting, it's like, coffee table talk you know at the end of the show you you know you get to hang out with your friends and you're like wait you you got in a bathtub wait you were tied up wait you know like everybody's experience is completely different and what's really cool about our show is we're a five to one ratio 
So we are five audience members to one actor. So if you want, with our show, you are allotted to have a Mm -hmm. one-on-one with somebody. So every single person in our audience gets a one-on-one compared to other shows, um, other immersive shows where it's hard to have that experience. You know what I mean? You're just all evening, you're just following one person or two people or whatever, you know? Yes, uh, Catherine Chandler, who my student who I brought up here, Mm Uh, I got to have the fun experience of watching my student getting sandwich danced. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, so, so what's your background? I, I, I know from the, the, the bio and stuff that your press agent sent that you both worked on a bunch of other immersive theaters, so you... Have some this is well. This. this is my okay. first immersive theater okay. experience. Anthony has I've, done I've stuff worked before. On, I've worked on a couple, and um, the majority of our team has worked at all yeah. the all the big immerses. We have uh, folks who worked at Sleep No More, and Then She Fell, and The Grand Paradise, and Queen of the Night. Um, I've worked on a bunch of uh, smaller immersive pieces here. This is the the. The, I guess the final presentation version of Curiosities. Mm-hmm. It's gone through two other workshop versions, which were all very different. How do you workshop an immersive theater piece? You have to <laughs> stage it. You have to, yeah, you have to do a production. Say, you have to bring no in thing audience. as a reading for immersive no, theater, right? No, yeah. it's, it's not. Trial it's, and error. You know, for, for this particular version of the show, um, we did, what, two and a half weeks of a rehearsal process. Um, what's so amazing about Anthony is that he has been able to gift us this incredible story, a, a playground in which we as actors and me, the, dire- the other director and choreographer, can really indulge in and play in. But it's, you know, you also, with immersive theater, it's half of it is the actors ex- putting it together, yeah. and then the other half is the audience experience. You know, having them be a part of it is how we can tell how our show is going to end up. So during previews, we did about, what, two weeks of previews or so? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had a comment box to ask people what they thought. You know, please let us know, good, bad, and different. Let us know what you think so that we can, you know, trial by error, you know, and find out what people like and what they didn't like and... You know, that's, I think, how immersive works, essentially, you know. And the show grows, I mean, even though the show is technically frozen now, you know, we're not making any (laughs) changes, um, every show is different because every audience member is different. I cannot give the same delivery to everybody, each performance. Mm. It depends on, on who I'm talking to and what state they're in in the night and what state I'm in at that point in the night. And um, so it's really an exploration of how do these same stories take on different meanings? And that's kind of a thing that we examined is um, almost all of our text in our one-on-ones are biblical. Um, There's a huge theme of religion and faith. And I've always been kind of obsessed with the idea of people taking, whether it's scripture or it's a... um, a quote and twisting it to make it mean what they want it to mean. You know, you you hear in debates about all kinds of things, people using the same Bible quote for and against. And obviously it can only mean its yeah. original intention was one thing. Yeah. And so I think the idea of, of purposefully taking these parables that a lot of people know and twisting them intentionally and very clearly... Almost have a double meaning. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. to mean something else. 
um, which has been which has been fun. And you know, the audience, even if they're not familiar with the parable, you know, they're great stories, and the characters are so human. Even though we're in this weird underground post-prohibition, <laughs> you know, dystopia. Um, you know, these characters are, are real human people who are going through real things that we all connect with. This is a story of people who feel lost and forgotten, and I think everyone feels lost and forgotten at some point in their life. Our and, show is basically like the island of misfit toys, you know? <laughs> Essentially, I mean, these people have come from all walks of life, and in the 1930s, you know, early 1930s, you know, life was very, very difficult for everyone, you know? And uh, our story, basically, the, the story of curiosity is, is that this gentleman, the professor, has uh, uh, alluded to having another uh, woman as a part of his life that he was intimate with at, at some point. And they created this group of people. They got a group of people together to make them feel wanted and needed, and they travel from place to place to place. And with their travels, they get more people that are more involved with essentially their family, you know. And then what ends up happening is, is um, a new girl is brought into the mix, and the rest of the family was unaware of the professor telling, you know, bringing in this new girl. So the rest of the family is upset by it. And then it kind of destroys their evening and changes the whole dynamic amongst everybody. But we can't tell you the end. Yeah. It's a secret. And I don't know. But here's the fun thing about the show is yeah. even though you know the ending, yeah. Yeah. I bet if you came back, you would want to know how at least one of those yeah. characters got to that place yeah. at yeah. the end. Yeah. Um, it's, it's exactly you know what Brian said. And it's a story, of, I guess, of people trying to create their concept of paradise under the wing of somebody they consider their protector and their keeper and their savior, and what happens when that person is willing to do whatever it takes to maintain this utopia, and at what point is it no longer acceptable utopia? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So how long is, is Curiosity's an open-ended run, or are you we are or We what? are slated to run <laughs> through November the 26th, the feeling we're going to run a little longer than that. I can't officially say, yeah. but but I have a very strong feeling that we're going to run a little bit longer than that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, that's good, cool. So, on other things that I'm sure a lot of other people are wondering, and you got to take advantage of having the creators here, yeah. as people in other places are going, oh, what, what is this immersive theater thing, and how can I do it? <laughs> <laughs> what pieces of advice do you have to pass on? What are some things that people should be looking at doing if they're uh, putting together a piece of immersive theater or uh, looking at avoiding? Um. Patience. It takes a lot, a lot of patience to put something, uh, to put an immersive piece together. Um, it is truly a, a matter of trial and error. Um, I think you, I, I, you know, I've been looking online to see new shows that are the immersive theater that's kind of popping up. There's a new show in Denver that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. I'm forgetting the name of it. It's escaping my mind. But um, it's, it's exploring and being open to endless possibility. Um, I, I remember the, my first day where we were putting a couple numbers together. And so there's, we have a thing where there's a cabaret room 
and there's an act going on in there, but then we have another room where there's like five one-on-ones happening at the same time. So I was standing in the middle and making sure that we were all timing out everything, you know, <laughs> that it's all going to match up and this person goes there and this person goes there. That's kind of, I think, the, the most difficult part of immersive theater is timing. Um, and, and not only timing it, but making sure that you're, you're keeping the story intact and the honesty so nothing is feeling rushed you know, building those safety nets to make sure that, okay, if something messes up, I still have time to proceed and go on and do this, you know. Um, and also going to experience immersive theater. I think you only, you're only as good as what you know. You know what I mean? So go see an immersive piece, even if it's, you know, in a black box or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, go immerse yourself in, in something that is outside of your realm so that you can create really cool and interesting art. That's what's so cool about immersive theater. It's you're literally creating something from the ground up. And isn't that the point of art, you know? How do you audition actors for uh, something like this? This is, um, <laughs> I, I love the audition process for immersive shows. Um, and, and I learned this kind of as originally as a performer auditioning for other immersive pieces is we run our auditions like a masterclass. You'll come in, you'll dance with Brian, we'll um, lay on the floor and do some exercises, and I'll have you, you know, It sounds walk. like Harvey Fire, well, Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> oh, no. Not like that. No. Uh, and then we'll have you walk around the space and engage with yeah. the other, other auditionees. <laughs> like, we run it like you would uh, an acting masterclass. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we want to see how you take risks, mm-hmm. how you interact with other people. And then from there, we call people back and I say, prepare a short story or a monologue, generally with a secret. Mm-hmm. Take me, put me wherever you want in the room, lay me down on the floor, mm-hmm. sit me in a chair, tell me that story and as a, as a one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, you know, we... It's about look and, mm-hmm. you know, all that same stuff as, you know, casting a show on Broadway or a regional job or a tour or whatever. But that's the immersive part of it is that you have to be open to anything. You know what I mean? Because when you're in a one-on-one taking you in, you're going to, you might not want to be tied up against the wall. You know what I mean? Whereas somebody else might want that, you know? How do you, how do the actors deal with, um, I imagine there's got to be audience members at time again who are less willing to be coached. Mm -hmm. Um, well, we have a standard to, to bring somebody in to a one-on-one. We always yeah. offer their hand or our hand yeah. to, to the, to the um, guest. And if they, uh, if they accept the offer, yeah. then that means they're open to a possibility of something happening. Consent is important for yeah. us in immersive theater because there was a, a kind of historically a period of, of immersive theater mm-hmm. in the 1980s where they just did horrible things to audience members. Um, that's not the kind of immersive theater that exists now is we want you to, would you like to come with me? I have something to show you kind of offer. Yes. Great. Then we go mm-hmm. and, and do that. But every interaction has a consent portion before any scene or interaction starts and people are free to refuse um, I don't think we've had anybody thus far in the run um, refuse anything, though. Um, and there's some there's some 
a little bit more intensive experiences and there's some more passive experiences. But everyone, I think if you go in with an open mind and know that we're here to tell a story and if you're going to lay in this bathtub with us, <laughs> it's it's going to help us tell you a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll feel it and understand it in a different way. Yeah. Well, I imagine you're going to find out a lot of different ways yeah. to deal with those people over the run of Curiosities. Um, what's the website again? CuriositiesNYC.com. Okay, so people can check that out if they're yeah, listening to the podcast too. quickly. It might still be playing. I'm not sure when this is going up yet, but... Uh, uh, I definitely wish you guys the best of luck. Thank you, Thank so you very, much. very much. You, it's a, just like a movie experience I'll remember. It was my first immersive thing, so that's... Yeah. <laughs> so. And hopefully this compels yeah. you to come see more immersive yeah. things. Or you create know? your own. Or create your own, oh, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful art form, and it's, it's really hot right now. Like, everybody... Everybody, everybody wants, wants to be touched. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, most people do. You know? All right, so Brian Knowlton... And Anthony Logan Cole, again, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, go make some more people curious. Go touch more people. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. A reminder to everybody that we have unedited interviews of everything from season six up. So uh, if you want to find out more from any of the people from season six onward, we've got the unedited interview posted on BroadwayBullet.com. Uh, Just to keep space in the feed, we only put up the most current episodes, unedited interviews, and then we take those down and the next one comes up. But you can find them all at BroadwayBullet.com. Up Close. Before we play uh, the interview with Joseph Reese and Serana Gay, thought you might want to hear a couple songs that Joseph has written. So we'll play one before and one after. This first song is called Chomping at Their Bits. It's a demo from Fatty Fatty, No Friends. And this was also composed by Christian DeGray, who we heard from earlier the season. Here is Chomping at Their Bits, lyrics by Joseph Reese. Oh, I am done. 
Serana is the book writer for Whiskey Pants, as well as many other things. And Joe Reese is the lyricist for Whiskey Pants, (laughs) as well as a bunch of things. And I understand you guys work together as well as separately, um, or or is most of your career working as a team? Um, We've done a lot as a team. We've done a lot as a team. There's, I mean, me and Christian DeGray, we did a... Uh, project together, you know, last year that was kind of, I guess that would be outside of our partnership. Outside of our, our three-person <laughs> uh, team. Yeah. So, yeah. Most Mostly of what we do as together. a team. Yeah. <laughs> the the team. stuff that I write <laughs> that without you is not for theater. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. In the theater sphere, we are a team. That is absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like this particular show, we're going to talk a little bit both about what you guys do. Yeah. But, uh, Serana, I feel like this is an opera, basically, mm-hmm. sung through, as we talked about. Not an opera, for not an opera, really, for those of you who are not listening and didn't hear Christian's interview. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to trick you. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, I think that means this is a good time to educate people that, a book writer is not just the one who writes the spoken words. Yes, that is correct. And it's been it's actually been an interesting process because I think the way the three of us work is kind of different than the way a lot of people work um, because we're not working with book scenes. Um, and it's, it's sort of been a fun collaborative process um, developing how we work together. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure you do have people come up to you after they see your shows and yeah. go, what did you what do? What do you do? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, no bitterness. It's all good. <laughs> um, so yeah. they use so, your chance to the, tell us all. Tell everybody. What do I do? So basically, I, I usually write a short story first for concept and world and story. And then from there, we kind of discuss how to make that into... A theatrical thing and then I give Joe some sort of outline of this is the arc these are the characters um, kind of scene by scene this is what I want to happen then he goes away and he writes beautiful poetry and brings it back to me <laughs> and then I sort of um, shape that into more like this person says this this person says that kind of thing um, it really is <laughs> incredibly valuable as a lyricist having a book writer because I don't I mean I, I do songs I'm not a songwriter but I, I write lyrics I don't do story very much and so like I'll send Serana you know a group of lyrics or you know she calls it poetry I don't know if I deserve <laughs> that but, <laughs> but I'll send her a group of, of lyrics and then 
I'll turn around and a week later, she's been through it and Christian's been through it uh, musically. And, all and of you a don't sudden, recognize anything. I don't rec- well, <laughs> yeah, it's true. A lot we, of times I don't recognize everything that you've done. <laughs> no, but it's, it's awesome though because it becomes like this, you know, when I'm writing lyrics, I'm looking at it very, very through a very small glass. I'm looking at specific moments and I'm not really looking at the big, uh, the big picture very much. And so when I see how it gets put together, it's really cool. One of my favorite things about art is having somebody else interpret what I'm doing. Um, and, you know, and having it change and collaborating. And I think that that's with the, especially with the process that we use to make theater. Um, I think it's super cool. It's a really interesting experience seeing, you know, how something gets filtered through three different people yeah. and becomes, you know, better than the sum of its parts. You have a wonderful deep voice. How often are people going, will you please come read us? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I, like I could have you around. Um, yeah, and I think it's cool as like a, a team of three, because I also write fiction and things, but um, when you're doing that, you're alone. And so it's a very different process. Um, but the three of us have very different skill sets and um, pay attention to very different things. And so having those other sets of eyes, um, it, it's fun. It's really so fun. So when people cross you, do you go, we have a very particular skill set. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we make you look very bad in fiction. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you believe me, son. You will be the villain in my next play. Yeah. And ugly. But yeah, it's been it's been very fun exploring that, and I never thought that I would even be writing musicals. Um, and then suddenly I found some people that wanted to make stuff together, and here we are. How did the process work for you guys connecting artistically? Um, um, well, me and like Christian... a key party? Not that there hasn't been a key party at some point. <laughs> but, uh, but no, me and Christian worked together for um, a company called, uh, well, at the time it was called Nightstar. Now I think it's just called Star. Um, doing educational theater, you know, we were... Build as outreach coordinators for St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital, but we did um, educational theater, and it was a collaborative writing process um, for that stuff. So that was the first time that me and Christian ever got to like, you know, work on writing a show or writing songs or whatever together. Um, and that was a few years before Serana came into the picture. Several. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know how many years. <laughs> you guys have known each other a long time. Yeah, we've known each, me and Christian have been writing stuff for 10 years, probably. Yeah. Um, and Serana has been around for four? Yeah. Five? Uh, almost five, over four, a little over four. <laughs> um, yeah, so then I met Christian working at Fringe, um, and we just, I, I think... The way we started collaborating was I, like, read him a short story I had written or something. Mm -hmm. And I was fresh out of college, sort of. I was an actress and then was just writing because I liked it (laughs) and never really thought that it would be, you know, the thing that I was going to end up doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I read him a short story and he was like, you have an incredible voice. Let's make some stuff happen. So he actually convinced me to write a novel, which I'm still working on. Because um, <laughs> you had to distract yourself. Because I had to distract myself with some musicals, um, and then um, we just sort of 
he and Joe wanted to write a thing, and they were like, want to write us a story? And then it all just happened, and it it happened to work beautifully. Joe and I actually didn't even meet each other until the opening night of our first show. Yeah, because um, I live in North Carolina He lives now. in North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. And so it was just this kind of text-based relationship, yeah. and then yeah. we met each other, and we were like, we're already best friends! <laughs> you know my brain! No, it's true. It was very <laughs> mystical. <laughs> um, Does technology help with your collaboration in a way that, you know, just email couldn't, you know, or in the past? Yeah. Uh, well, communication-wise, you know, obviously, you know, we communicate text, email, yeah. Facebook message, yeah. WhatsApp, you know, Marco Polo will do, like, yeah. video, like <laughs> anything you can possibly think of, of that's a communication platform. Uh, helps and then you know it does help, but mo- mostly we use email Google Docs. and Google Docs and Google Docs are great <laughs> because <laughs> you can be on there at the same time and be like, okay, I'm no, like, I don't like that yeah. line. It's that's great. But, uh, it happens like that sometimes. <laughs> but it, it's also kind of cool. Like I don't know, Christian and I have done a lot more in person collaborating. Um, and that would just be like yelling. We used to live together, and so it was like yelling across the apartment. I'm having this thought. Um, <laughs> what do you think of this? Let me play you this chord. Um, but with Joe, it's like the, uh, the distance is also kind of interesting because it creates space for like reflection and revision. And um, I don't know. It's like by the time I get something from you, You've probably already thought about it a lot. So then, when I come back with thoughts, you're like, "Oh, I had this thought in the interim." And um, <laughs> but it's great to have you here. And, it's, and it gives a kind of freedom, also. Like I feel like it'd be harder to be critical and you know revisionist if you're looking somebody dead in the face while you're reading their stuff for the first time. You know? Mm. Yeah. Um, I think that kind of the distance creates some time, and so like we kind of get to spend some time with stuff before we have to react and and revise and, and revise it. And yeah. I think that helps a lot. So but, did you, yeah. North Carolina, is that what you North said? Carolina. So what's your life like in North Carolina? <laughs> Ooh, um, it's fun. Um, I lived in New York for eight years. I born in Chicago, grew up in North Carolina, New York for eight years, and then moved back down. So now I am. Uh, Happily married um, with two twin girls, um, 15 months old, and they're awesome. They're a full-time job, um, and I also have a full-time job. (laughs) Um, So most of my writing actually gets done late night. I don't sleep much. You know, I usually get started around when, you know, the babies go to bed at 9, 8.30, 8.00. Uh, the wife falls asleep by 10, and then I'm writing starting at, like, 11 to, like, 3 a.m. Um, How much do you have to, like, gear yourself up to do that? Or are you just kind of, like, a naturally, like, yes, I'm going to just work late? I For don't... those artists out there that struggle with, you know, creating, making time in their hectic life. Uh. Is this something you work at? That I have to get here and do this work, or is this what just well, it's, it is up? It is something you have to, like, kind of will yourself to do. But for me... It's it's not so much about you know forcing myself to stay up because I I'm a night owl anyway. I, I think I'm my most creative when I'm uh, you know sleep deprived. <laughs> Thank you and Christian share that. Yeah. I'm not. <laughs> but uh, but no, it's uh, the the tough part is trying to balance like family life with that kind of 
working style, you know, like getting three, four hours of sleep, you know, waking up at 6 a.m. with the kids and making sure to be awake and present for them and then go to work. Um, it can be it can be tough, but it's worth it. Like when I always say you got to have something to do when you get home from work, you know, like there's there's got to be another focus somewhere. And it's totally therapeutic for me. It, it's it is my quality of life besides my you know kids and family, but it's like my it's my favorite thing to do. And so, and what is your typical day of finding time to work in the bustle of New York? Hmm. Um, I spend a lot of time alone in my apartment, <laughs> <laughs> um, and about half of that is you know, procrastination and getting the, the, uh, discipline to do it. And then, um, yeah, I've also gotten, I work in restaurants for money. Um, and I, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, <laughs> just like you, um, I've, been, I've been fortunate enough to, kind of, to um, find, <laughs> to find, I, I work in restaurants for fun. I didn't know you could make money. <laughs> Some people do. Yeah, I yes, do yeah. work with people that, uh, love that <laughs> I, I do it for money uh, let's be real but uh i've been fortunate enough to to find a job that is very flexible and i make well you never make enough money in New York, yeah. but i i'm able to work relatively part-time and still make it work so that gives me time to do other things you know, that's what i it's found great. most bizarre when i first moved to new york it seems like part-time jobs don't really exist here at least when i when i got here you know the it's like they want you like full time, oh, or, yeah. or or the part times are just like in like McDonald's, and, and they, they even want you. Know, but, and you don't make yeah. enough money. You don't make any money. And you know when I was when I was in New York, really like when I first moved here, I moved to when I moved to New York, I had eighty dollars in my pocket. Um, you know, some people were supposed to buy my car, they never paid me for it, so I just came to Brooklyn, is where I first moved with a bag of tuna cans and <laughs> 80 bucks. And then it, that was when a one month, um, and Metro you turned pass. that tuna in 85 bucks. But that, was when a, that was when a one month Metro pass cost $76. Yeah. And so that's, I remember go. that like the first day I was there getting my one month. Being yeah, like, I think we oh, came here about shit. the same time then. 99? Uh, 2005. Oh, was it, did it stay 70 bucks? That that no, wait, no, no, that's not, I don't remember what year. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I remember the seventy. And then a year and a half, I was you know living in, on my friend's couch and working three jobs, and it sucked. But it, it's kind of cool because that's the New York thing to do. Like yeah. if, if I slept on somebody's <laughs> couch and you know worked three jobs in Raleigh, North Carolina, people would people think would I be was like, "You're crazy! What failure. are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> but in New York, it's like, "Oh yeah, I got three jobs. How many jobs do you have? Three or four? Yeah. You know, yeah. I work seventy-five hours a week. You know, it's kind of like an accepted struggle, which is." I think kind of the appeal of, of New York living. Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere else, if you're 30 and still living at home, you know, your failure here, it's like you're lucky. It's yeah, like, oh right. Well, I'm so jealous you're from here. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Remember when I, when I first moved back to North Carolina, we uh, were looking at apartments, and my apartment in New York was 600 square feet. And so I found one in North Carolina that was 1,000 square feet. I thought it hit the the fucking lottery. Um, and then after living there for a, a few months, I was like looking around how everybody else was living. I was like, oh. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Thing? Yeah. <laughs> Other realtors around the country got to like take notice that if somebody moves from New York, they're an easy, easy mark. Easy mark. 
Yeah. I think I looked at two this apartments. I was like, this is best awesome. apartment in the city. Wait, it has a washer and dryer. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. I miss that. <laughs> I miss New York though. I, I miss the you know the hustle and bustle and the um, the constant stimulation. You know, being in New York, quieter down down south. All right. Well, Serena Gay and Joe Reese. Joe Reese and Serena All the way through the interview. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you guys so much for coming oh, down. Thank a real you. pleasure meeting thank you. Thank you for and, having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. And uh, yeah. best well, of luck. We'll try to make sure you get the chance. Yeah. <laughs> you still have one more week to catch whiskey. <laughs> Not by the time this goes up. Uh, you'll be, right. be back at some point. Well, you personally <laughs> have one more week to <laughs> catch whiskey. Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank cool. you so much. Thanks. Before we get to our last interview, we have one more song with lyrics by Joe Reese. This is It's Gonna Flood from a show in development. Music by Christian DeGray. Moonshine in B minor. Here it is. Moonshine, moonshine. Look to the sky, see the gathering clouds. Moving up like big old clouds. Moonshine, moonshine. The east restless sky don't know no peace It's snarling and gnashing its teeth Moonshine, moonshine There's a vicious storm There's a rain getting ready to fall That rain has the power That storm can destroy us all now it might seem that the time like a trickle Like a spritzing just mixing up some mud But the weather we all know can be fickle This rain ain't gonna rain, it's gonna flood Moonshine, This girl that's been sharing your bed This white girl that's been soiling your sheets She's putting this stupid idea that, that this, this could ever end in peace Moonshine, 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 moonshine There is great violence rolling toward us There is a fire in dire blood Our ancestors call out to warn us This rain ain't gonna drain, it's gonna flood This rain ain't gonna drain, it's gonna flood it's gonna flood, it's gonna flood. There's a vicious storm that's brewing 
there's a rain getting ready to fall. That rain has the power to do both of you. That storm can destroy us all. Now it might seem at the time like a trickle, like a spritzing just mixing up some mud. But the weather we all know can be fickle. This rain ain't gonna rain, it's gonna flow. Beginning to blow, the clouds are starting to form. The thunder, the thunder is rolling low. Moon shine, moon shine, moon shine, moon shine. You better get the hell out of that bed. Shut the door and make sure it does. I'm afraid you're gonna end up dead when that rain starts falling and floods. Moon shine. There will be fire and ire and blood. There will be fire and ire and blood. This rain ain't gonna drain. It's gonna flood. This rain ain't gonna drain. It's gonna flood. This rain ain't gonna drain. It's gonna flood. It's gonna flood. Moonshine, moonshine. This rain ain't gonna drain. It's gonna flood. It's gonna flood. Breaking the business. One of my favorite phrases is that theater famous ain't famous. <laughs> but I think a lot of people out there don't realize that even that it's theater famous or nothing. But there's a lot of actors out there who make their living, who work solidly, and work in great productions without ever becoming super famous. And Brett Twomey is somebody that uh, a couple years ahead of me in high school here in Montana and just a great person, and has been working consistently, touring, made his Broadway debut a few years back, mm -hmm. works constantly in the Chicago theater scene, and uh, so Brett Twomey is here to talk a little bit about all those various things. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm very <laughs> excited to talk to you today. <laughs> so, um, first off, uh, tell us kind of in a nutshell what you kind of your career has encompassed, like a, a highlights reel, and then we'll get into oh, okay. more. Okay, yeah, you know, I, I started here in Montana. I grew up here in Great Falls, and uh, uh, you know, did summer theater around the state and around the region quite a bit for years. And I um, uh, worked at uh, some some places uh, in California and in New York that were you know non union type theater, and I had to do a lot of other sort of jobs that go along with that, and you know, not in including uh, sweeping the stage and uh, serving drinks between acts and things like that uh, as a non-union performer. But uh, I was an actor, and uh, I dug it. Did that for a while, and then I went to grad school and um, had a great experience at the Hillbury Theater in Detroit where we would do seven shows in rep um, every year, lots of classical stuff, Shakespeare and things like that. And uh, when that was done... Um, I shortly after that earned my equity card doing uh, Death of a Salesman with the Montana Rep, and then I was I turned equity, uh, joined the union. I, I I didn't know where I wanted to live, so I I <laughs> stalled in terms of moving somewhere right away. I I was kind of afraid of the big city. 
having grown up in Montana. What? We've got like a million people in the whole state. I know. I but, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, did you experience anything like that? Like just, just not necessarily fear, but you well, know. Well, no, I know what you're talking about. I mean, my biggest thought when I finally moved to New York is, my God, if I really had understood this, I totally would have come here earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, I, so at this point in my life, I'm like 35, 36 years old where I'm having to make a decision about where I want to try to make a living as a real actor. As an actor, you know, that in a big market that is working as a, in union jobs. And uh, I ended up choosing Chicago mainly because at the time that I was making the decision, I was working with a lot of Chicago actors, and they talked me into it. They were like, yeah, come on out, we can help you out. Ship you know? the Kool-Aid. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I had a connection for a day job that way, and so that helped. Because being able to show up in Chicago already with a day job, it takes a lot of burden off. You know, you know you're going to be at least able to pay your rent, if nothing else. Um, and uh, it was tough for those first uh, for that first year and a half or so, trying to figure out how I was going to make this work. Um, I, I, I was having a hard time even getting auditions, you know. Nobody knew me, and uh, I was, you know... And a union actor at 35 years old or so, and it's it's just one of those things. It takes a while to to for you to get known and uh, get any respect for for what you've accomplished. My resume didn't really mean much to them because it was all theaters that they probably had never even heard of for the most part. But I stuck with it, and uh, eventually uh, I booked my first show, and uh, I had a couple more fall after that. I went through a, a dry spell here or there. But uh, eventually, I started working regularly enough that I was able to quit my day job, and, and that was eight years ago, and uh, I've been working pretty steadily in the city ever since. Yeah. All right, so a couple things I think might be of particular interest. Yes. Uh, a few years ago, you made your Broadway debut in Rock of Ages. I did. This was actually se- yeah, seven years ago. Was it seven? Is that long ago? It's yeah, it time was. flies when yeah. I remember seeing all the exciting posts on Facebook. Yes. And- and stuff. Um, but I do know that that's a lot of people's way into getting their first kind of Broadway role is doing the tour and then moving up. So I was wondering if you had any insight for actors. Like, what's the actual difference between the tour and doing the show? Sure. How uh, do you kind of put your hat, you know, hat in the ring without being annoying? You know? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if that, that's even possible I, as, as far as putting your hat in the ring to go on Broadway. Mm-hmm. You know, you can... You, I suppose you can mention it to somebody that might have power to make that happen. Uh, but for the most part, they assume that anybody who's doing the tour would do the Broadway you know, show in a heartbeat if given the offer. And, and that was the case with me as well. Because it's the same creative team that's working on the tour as it is in Broadway, obviously. And, and uh, so they know your work. And I, I guess that's really how you do The way you do it is do your job well on the tour. And then if the opportunity comes up, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll help you out. Um, you know, it, it, I guess the, one of the biggest differences for me and most people that go from the tour to Broadway is the fact that I was working out of Chicago as opposed to New York. I mean, most people who have Broadway dreams of, of being on Broadway, they're not going to move to Chicago. That doesn't, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I did and it somehow worked out, uh, as a, how old was I at the time? 43 year old man living in Chicago. Somehow I managed to make my Broadway debut. You know, the differences, yeah. you talking about the differences between the two. Um, I, I'm, I'm well-suited for touring. I'm, I, there are some people that tour well, and there are some people that don't. It's, it's, it's a lifestyle because 
you're away from every, real life for so long. And if you have family, if you have pets or, you know, a significant other that isn't there with you, you know, that can be very hard. And, you know, some people don't like living in hotels and eating in restaurants all the time. That was one of the big reasons. I know that a lot of early opportunities for actors are touring, and mm -hmm. I never felt I would be well-suited for touring. And yeah. that's one of the reasons why I focused on music and moved into a slightly different direction. Yeah, I've just, I always liked that idea of being able to put real life behind and just live in this sort of, like, enclosed social circle that just moves around. And it's something about that has always been appealing to me, and I've enjoyed it. The bonding experience you have with people on the road is, is amazing because you're spending all your time with them, and they are your social circle. And uh, then you go to Broadway, and, uh, you know, these are people that are working. They're basically, it's their, it's their job, and they've been doing it a long time, and they go to the theater and do the show, and then they go home. Sometimes they'll go out for a drink or whatever, but if anybody doesn't want to, they won't. And, you know, you can not participate on tour as well in the social aspect of things, but you're going to have you're not going to have as good of time, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so it, it really struck me, you know, like, uh, especially since, you know, we were pretty consistent about who the, our crew was, who the, our orchestra was on tour, and then you get to Broadway, and, you know, there's people subbing in, in and out all the time. Um, so you don't get to know people as well. Uh, and uh, as much as I enjoyed my time on Broadway, it was nowhere near as fun as touring. <laughs> nowhere near as fun. Now, you say, like, some people are built for touring and some people aren't, which I kind of agree in terms. Yeah. Can you do yourself a big disservice as an actor, taking on a tour job, but that not working well for you, whether you can't hold up the energy or you can't, can that be a... A poor, you know, a, a nail in the coffin against you? Because, I mean, it's a close world. Yeah. I mean, I, I think obviously it can. I mean, uh, as far as your career, you're yeah. talking. Like, yeah. Like, you take a job that you that is a touring job, and you don't really like touring, so you go out. And, it, and then you're and, an and, asshole. Exactly. <laughs> you're mean to people, and people don't like you, and, and then you get off the tour, and then nobody wants to work with you anymore. Yeah, I suppose that's possible. <laughs> I suppose that's possible. I mean, like, I think about that Rock of Ages tour, if there was anybody on that tour who I think did themselves a disservice, I, I, I don't I don't think there was anybody that did. There there were definitely people that were not having as much fun as others mm -hmm. and, and didn't enjoy themselves as much as others. But they, they they always put gave a good performance. They were they were very talented people, professionals that, that uh, had been doing it a long time, and, and uh, they pulled their weight that way, you know, and... Um, you know, it was never fun to see them depressed or sad or whatever, you know, just around the, the dressing rooms or whatever that, you know, you don't like that ever in life having to deal with when you're feeling good. You don't want to be around people feeling bad necessarily. Um, but I don't hold it. I, I don't think anybody would hold it against them in the long run. I mean, if their talent is there, their talent is there. So. Is it harder keeping your energy up and your enthusiasm up when you're kind of moving city to city and on a long tour? Because I, I, so. I get the feeling, I mean, oh, oh, we don't get generally the Broadway tours here, though. Yeah. We get like the, you know, second stringers. Sure. So we're out in the West and we're almost always like at the end of the tour. And I just hate, I don't really go to our touring shows because uh -huh. I'm like, I can see that the actors are over it. <laughs> well, everybody else in the community is like, wow, they're wonderful. And I'm like, they're phoning it in. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, okay, because like Rock of Ages, when when our tour ended, uh, they very quickly started up the the non union tour that did uh, a lot of the smaller places and, and here, yeah, right, exactly, um, and you know the, the musicians there were there were actual musicians that were on the Broadway, I mean, that are on the the first national tour that went on the second tour with the with the non equity folks and 
And uh, yeah, I mean, you could I could tell from following them on Facebook that they were not as psyched to play, say, Great Falls as they would be <laughs> to even play a place like Baltimore or somewhere yeah. like that. I mean, getting to experience all those cities, those big cities in that way, you know, staying in a nice mm-hmm. hotel, usually in a downtown area. Uh, at a great venue that a lot of times is very historic or not. Maybe it's brand new, like the Winspear Opera House in Dallas. It's probably one of the coolest theaters I've ever played, and it's brand new. I mean, it was always so much fun to get to a new city. And, I mean, you know, I did a CETA contract as opposed to a, a production contract tour. So our stays could be as little as a week. You know, we would go sometimes a week or two weeks. We were like five weeks in San Francisco. But... um I liked it that way. My favorite day, of, I, and I love travel days. You know what I mean? Travel <laughs> days were so much fun. <clears throat> Going through the airports and, or, or even getting on a bus, you know, with the days we did, we rode the bus. and Because uh, it was bonding. It was fun. And, and, yeah, people hated travel days. Some people hated travel days. And that, but but I, I, there was enough of us that enjoyed them that we had a good time. And the, some of my best memories of tour were travel days, <laughs> let me tell you. How yeah. how does like weather and climate play into your instruments, so to speak? Because I know when I travel, like there's a lot of places I go. I go to Denver, the altitude, and I'm every time sick the first day. Really? And I mean, are there people, or have you dealt with that, or or like it's a dry climate and you find your voice isn't as warm, or you know, yeah. for me, not really. That it doesn't affect me. I mean, I'm I'm a character person. It's not like I really have this instrument that I have to be very delicate with. So. I thought you were still an engineer. Ah, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but like, yeah, we played Denver and there was, you know, they have the oxygen tank backstage <laughs> and there were people that were like very much like, Oh my God, I can't handle this altitude. That would have been me. Breathing in the oxygen. I'm like, Oh, come on. It's not that bad. Uh, you know, maybe I was just being, cause having grown up in Montana and I, well, I'm in Montana, but I Denver per- performed in places like Virginia city, which is really high and, yeah. and Laramie, Wyoming, which is really high, you know? Uh, I guess I never really noticed the difference. And so, um, I mean, yes, you notice the difference when you do something like run up a flight of stairs. Then you notice it. It's like, oh, gosh. <sighs> but but in terms of performing, I don't think it affected me at all. I really don't. Um, you know, you always like nice weather as opposed <laughs> to cold weather. It, anytime, you know, I have to deal with cold weather, that's going to affect my, my mood and my willingness to want to perform. But um, And nice weather is nice weather, I so, uh, shifting gears a little bit to the Chicago scene. Sure. I mean, it's notoriously a big town, but it doesn't get the same kind of intense scrutiny that Broadway does. And there's probably a lot of listeners out there who don't realize all of the opportunities that are around in Chicago. There is, especially with non-union theater. And, and you know, the, the improv scene in Chicago is enormous. I mean, it's really pretty much the, the capital of the <laughs> globe in terms of, uh, of improv training and, and improv theaters. Um, so, so that element uh, adds a, a huge. Uh, there's a lot of performers in the city that are just improv actors. Um, in the non-union theater scene, there are so many storefronts, so many storefront theaters that uh, you know, small companies that uh, sometimes they last a couple of years, and but there are some who manage to hold on for decades and become something bigger. Um, and there are a lot of opportunities, even for a you know, for a union actor, there are, there are very good regional theaters in this town. And, and yeah, you brought up the whole thing about the scrutiny. I mean, there is definitely scrutiny in Chicago as well, but it isn't like New York because there, there isn't the, the commercial influence isn't there to the same degree. You know, we're not talking the budgets for these things. We're, we're talking about nonprofit theaters for most, mm-hmm. for the most part anyway. 
Um, and uh, they are allowed to, you know, take some chances, take a little few more chances than you can with uh, a Broadway show, you know, um, which for me, that's uh, that's the way I want to work. I mean, I would rather be able to uh, try some things that might fail than, you know, putting so much pressure on what the public is going to think, you know, what, how much are they going to, will they buy tickets, you know? Um, of course you want full houses no matter yeah. what kind of theater you're, you're doing. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. You, know, you understand the distinction. Yeah. Well, lots of great information here for the people who are, you know, getting into acting. And it's been so fun to sit down and talk to you about your, all your various things you've done in your professional oh, career. I love to talk about myself. It's been a long time since I've seen you face to face, man. So yeah, it has <laughs> like, been a while. So thanks for uh, coming in and doing the workshop You're for students. You're very welcome. You're thanks. very welcome. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Those kids were great. And now a couple of them are my Facebook friends. So. <laughs> Curtain Call. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's episode, Volume 815. Um, I've got two more episodes for you on this half of the season, and then we're going to be jumping really quickly into our next season as I'm heading to New York to do some interviews again. Um, I believe it's going to be uh, May 6th, the week of May 6th there, if you've got anybody you want to suggest. Um, so uh, we got next week, we coming up, we got some interviews with some of the playwrights and composers and lyricists with the DGF Fellows Program. So for all you playwrights uh, looking for uh, different ways to break in and get noticed, or uh, uh, actors, directors, if you're looking how to connect with some good playwrights, check that out. And then we have a Best of Broadway to close out this season, including an interview with the special effects designer for Frozen. I think it's a show that a few of you guys uh, are interested in seeing. All right, until then, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we will see you next week. Oh!